Thanks, Sarah. And uh, thank you guys staying awake as you guys are. I don't know why they call it red eyes, because everyone eyes, everyone's eyes are shut, except for mine. So, but I do want to thank Delta for getting me here later than, later than otherwise. And thank you guys for having such a good meeting. It's always a pleasure to be in front of you in uh, formats like this or whichever else. And I want to thank uh, the folks at Valiant for putting together this product theater. This is a little more label than unlabel, if you will. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to answer questions that are off-label or go off the grid. And uh, I'll just tell you up front that Valiant is paying for the session. They're paying for me to be here. And they will answer any questions that you have. You can contact their company uh, after the session is over. And those are my corporate sayings. So there you go. So let's talk a little bit about actinic keratosis, because we all see actinic keratosis. We all have dealt with patients with actinic keratosis many months, many years. And what's interesting is it's not a disease that we cure, right? It's a disease that we treat, disease we maintain. And whether you like it or not, you're in the club, right? The, the sad uh, example I give to patients is having actinic keratosis is kind of like losing your virginity. Once you're in, you're in. You're not going back. Because the problem with that is you get one, and you got to worry about what's coming six months from now. Right? The other thing is you see one now, and you're probably going to see 10 more if we don't treat them. And that's the difference between what we do in the office and what we do at home and what we have patients doing in between treatments. And that's the difference between treating a disease and treating what we see and treating the process. And that's where we'll kind of go over where a lot of our therapies fit and where the disease fits. So we can talk a little bit about AKs and their spectrum, but also think about what makes an AK in the first place and how we treat the whole concept of them, right? Because it's really a process. It's not something that patients just get once or they say, okay, I've got one lesion, I'm never coming back to see you. And more importantly is if we're not screening these patients correctly and, and routinely, you know, they'll just say, okay, I have dry skin, I'll, I'll moisturize over it and it's fine, right? So I'll ask you guys a show of hands. How many of you describe actinic keratosis as precancerous? Okay, sadly I do too. And the poor Dr. Ackerman is probably rolling around in his grave right now because, as we know, it's not a precancerous step like a bus stop, right? Actinic keratosis are a part of a progression. Investment of photo damage over time, gradual dysplasia, keratinocyte atypia, you get subclinical disease, you see an AK, and there's, a, again, the concept of photo damage right around it. Progression to squamous cell is why we actually do what we do. Right? And that's, that's a given of understanding the disease state, and that's why I use this, this uh, last slide here. Oop, there's a pointer. That's why I look at this last bullet point and say cumulative exposure, because how many patients will say, well, I didn't go out in the sun yesterday. Why do I have this? Right? It's like, well, this isn't the sun you got yesterday. This is 30 years of investment of photo damage. And unfortunately, this isn't even a disease of just age 40 now. We're seeing AKs in 30-year-olds. I saw one in a 25-year-old who was using tanning beds. And you, unfortunately, in Southern California, people seem to think mineral oil is a sunblock. It's like, well, guess what? It doesn't work that way. <clears throat> so unfortunately, now we're not dealing with the Medicare population of actinic keratosis alone. We're dealing with everybody and their, and their brother who has AKs. And the worst part is, too, you see pa patients with actinic keratosis, and they say, well, I, it's just a dry spot, or it's a red spot that doesn't heal. Or they describe it in a way that makes it sound trivial. The reality is this is something that even though you see it on the surface, you know what's happening underneath the microscope. There's an iceberg effect of potential degeneration to squamous cell if we don't treat these spots, right? So I'm sure you all have, have a routine for screening. Mine is you take your finger and you rub it over their forehead, you rub it over their temple, you, take a little, you have them take a little moisturizer, you say, once a month, you should be doing this at home. 
screening yourself and anywhere where it catches, you come back and show me that spot, right? And then you remind them that the difference between uh, actinic keratosis and dry skin is that actinic keratosis is one spot and dry skin is confluent and throughout, right? Just little tips like that remind them that this is not just something that's trivial or dry. This is reality of precancerous and potential for skin cancer down the road. But we've all seen patients like this where they've got a festival actinic keratosis on the scalp. You see one, there's probably 10 more adjacent to them. These are the patients that we can't just say, let's just freeze you, I'll see you next month or in six months, because we know that one of them is going to be on their way to squame. The other 10 are going to get another 10 that are near them, right? It's that whole progression of photodamaged skin that's going to lead to more of these as this, is, as this goes untreated, right? And that's where we, again, we think about treating the whole field or the whole zone of photo damage, right? Because with liquid nitrogen, we're just treating targets, and with photodynamic therapy, we may be getting a surface area, but we're not getting the process of the disease as much as we are when we think about topical chemotherapy or topical management that's working towards a, a larger end of clearance, okay? And again, as it says here, the approach to the field is to see what's, what we have and what's on the way. Right? And that's the difference, again, between treating the, pro the symptoms and treating the disease. Because really, an actinic keratosis is a symptom of photo damage. Okay? And the end point of the disease is actually squamous cell carcinoma. So that's, again, looking at the whole progression concept, not just treating what we see in front of us. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about Zyclera. And it's a little bit near and dear to me because I've been working with Amiquimod since you know, 2000, I've seen, uh, seen it change companies' hands a couple of times, I've seen it change names a couple of times, but the nice thing is these percentages that have come out that were studied in 2006 and eventually published in 2007 actually have some real utility in patients who need surface area treatment, who can benefit from the field effect, and who can also use this cycle management to minimize the consequence of therapy as well as maximize their outcomes. Now, what's important to remember is when we think about label, we think about what, what are we treating, right? Now, the indication is truly for full face and scalp, but we have to remember also that there's 200 square centimeters of labeled indication where we could actually use it, and that's a lot of surface area. That's the difference between you know, small two inches by two inches, which is 25 square centimeters, versus a whole scalp and a whole area of forehead and temples. That's a, that's a very significant difference in the amount of treatment, okay? Now, I love these little slides where nobody can read them from the back, and you say, okay, this looks like some lawyer wrote them. But let's actually dissect this for a second, because if you look here in the first safety slide, it's, or safety bullet point, it says, intense local reactions include weeping, erosion after a few applications of Zyclera, and may require interruption of dosing. We all understand that, right? Anyone who's used Imiquimod knows that by day four, you actually see the progression of the reaction building, and they may get to the point where all of the interferons, all the cytokines, everything that the immune system is using to mount the response will start to show its effects, right? And we may get to that point where patients will say, okay, this is really rolling downhill. We may even see that around day eight, right? And that might require patients to take a day off, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to lose ground with therapy. It's just like a snow day at school where you say, okay, we're going to close school today. We'll make it up at the end of the summer. Right? The same thing goes along with that interruption of dosing. If you have that patient who says, okay, I've got a, I've got a very brisk response, I can't handle it, or I'm getting flu-like symptoms or myalgias, you say, okay, let's take a break. Let's take a couple days, or let's just say here, maybe your two-week cycle ends a little bit early, and we make it up so that you still get the 28 days of therapy that we need, because that's the end point that we're trying to accomplish. Right? 
And you get a lot of patients who will say, well, I'm reacting, or you'll come in and you'll, you'll see them either with your supervisor or you'll see them on your own and you'll say, okay, this is a very brisk response, but we don't want to use words like adverse event or side effects. We want to use things like anticipated outcomes and aggressive reactions. Put those in your medical record because that's actually what we're expecting with the therapy. Right? The brisk responses, the erythema, all of those patient encounter or those patient experiences, those are part of what we actually want the drug to accomplish. And it's important to educate your staff or, or your, your medical assistants or whoever else when they're taking the history and the chart and say, this is actually what's going on, but make it a positive spin because that's the experience of the drug. It's not like a side effect of, of, of something that's causing its own rash or its own itching because that's a consequence of therapy. The outcomes that you're seeing with, with imiquimod are actually its true outcomes from the mechanism of your immune system, right? Because remember, imiquimod's not doing anything to the epidermis. It's creating an immune response that's actually building towards what you see clinically, okay? So it's important to you know, give those patients a pat on the back and say, sure, this is exactly what we want. And even though they might look at you like they want to kill you, they'll say, okay, fine, I'll stick with it because this is part of the response of the, of, of the therapy. The other thing to remember too is we get so consumed with the reaction, we forget about the endpoint, right? And I'll talk a little bit about eight weeks and 14 weeks and all the milestones, but think about how you see patients, right? Do we say, okay, start it on a Friday so you can blow up on a weekend, or maybe we should say, let's start it on a Sunday so that we can see their reaction by midweek, and by later on, maybe we schedule them for a follow-up so that we can assess how they're doing and rather than waiting for them to call the office in a panic. Okay, so these are all little tips that we can remind ourselves of when we're starting the Monzyclara to say, okay, let's maximize the outcomes, maximize the compliance without burning the house down and say, okay, the patient's having a bad time, now we have to stop, or even worse, that they get poisoned against the drug that they don't want to use it again, okay? So see, look how inventive we can be with one safety information slide, I love it. Okay, now the other important thing to remember is Administration of Zyclera cream is not recommended until the skin is healed from any previous drug or surgical treatment. Well, what, what other drug or surgical treatment do we do in the office that's minus 195.8 degrees Celsius? Anybody have any ideas? I won't say it, right? But at least I'll tell you that when we use treatments in the office, like liquid nitrogen or, or photodynamic therapy, we want to give patients an adequate time to rest before we start uh, before we start topical therapy because we want that skin not only to heal, we don't want to augment the immune response that's already been boosted by that therapy so that patients won't get a vigorous response. Now, the upside to that is if they do get a vigorous response and they hit the ground running, there's already an immune response in place that your body is making, so the clearance potential would be a little higher, but that patient has to be willing to go through that and not all of them do, right? Those are the ones on the phone every day putting you on Angie's list and cursing your name and saying, oh, I'm not gonna ever go back to you again, right? All right, now, why do patients get flu-like symptoms and signs? Why do these things even happen where they get fatigue, nausea, fever, et cetera? This is a consequence of interferons, right? This is what your body does when you get sick because when your body is exposed to a virus or the flu virus or what have you, you make an interferon response, you make cytokines, all of that is meant to boost the response against <clears throat> the virus that is trying to fight, off with, fight against you, right? That same response is mimicked by what interferons do when they're applied topically in the form of imiquimod or when they're administered intravenously, 
Okay, so patients can expect that, and we need to give them a heads up for that, but not everybody is gonna be dose limited. There's no way to predict who's gonna have flu-like symptoms, myalgias, or anything else. You could take somebody and apply a whole surface area to them, and they'll be fine. You could take someone with a couple square centimeters, and all of a sudden, they're debilitated and bedridden. There's no way to tell who that patient is gonna be, but you do have to be aware to counsel them so that they're on top of it in case it does happen. Right, so they're not running to their chiropractor or, or the emergency room and say, look at me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm bedridden now, I've got the flu. They're coming back to you saying, okay, we talked about this and now it's happening, this is where we take a little holiday from the therapy, okay? And then, of course, exposure to artificial light, avoiding other con concomitant and micromod cream, these effects that we're seeing in the studies, that's great. Those are studies, but let's talk about what we're going to see in reality. Oops, I hit the button that he told me never to hit, so there you go. Okay, <clears throat> so let's talk about Zyclera and how it developed. Because everyone remembers the old Aldara, everyone remembers you know, the packets, everyone remembers now that we have a nice pump, which I think is actually very important because it does give patients not only ease of use, there's also a controlled dosage, right? The one thing I, I, I would say about the pump in this case is that you wanna make sure that they're only using one pump a day one physical pump a day because I just had a patient you know last week he said well it only lasted me five days I said well how many pumps were you using he said well I, I did about three I'm like oh my god I said let's not do that so we've got to counsel the patient say look <clears throat> use one pump we got to maximize how much surface area you're using and also think about what their what surface area they're treating whether it be forehead scalp temples and if they're rotating around an area of their scalp or their face they can do that with some flexibility Okay, but at the same time, you gotta remind them not to overdo the pump because they're, they're gonna lose out on how much they're getting, and that way we don't go through a pump too quickly. <clears throat> okay, now, <clears throat> if everyone remembers about imiquimod and how it came to be, toll-like receptor seven is on the dendritic cells that process antigen. It's like the radar for your immune system, okay? Toll-like receptor seven is the agonist receptor for imiquimod, which basically gets processed. That turns into the appropriate cytokines that your dendritic cell makes towards the response against the actinic keratosis, okay? That's the purpose of a toll-like receptor. Now, <clears throat> all of these cell markers that are brought up, things like CD4, which is a T helper cell, CD68, which is a uh, macrophage, CD11 and CD8, which are other lymphocytes, these are all promoted by your host immunity. This is what's called cellular immunity or TH1 immunity, okay? That's the type of immunity we need to promote an action against skin cancer or against actinic keratosis, and that's where this effect of imiquimod has its benefits long-term, okay? And remind yourself, it's not creating a response that's new, it's taking your body's immune response that's already in motion and making it work harder and more efficiently against the target, which is the actinic keratosis, okay? So that's, that's why we use what we use. But how did 2.5 and, and 375 come into play? Well, if you remember, 5% was brought to, for genital warts. It was put in packets. It was meant to be twice a week for 16 weeks. And it was meant to use on only a small surface area, right? So 2.5% and, and 375 were studied together to look at a more efficient dosage protocol, to look at more effective, effective use on more surface area, and also to maximize compliance. Because who does anything twice a week for 16 weeks, right? It's very difficult. So if you look at this concept of saying, how did we make imiquimod more efficient? You look at a shorter treatment duration, which is now six weeks. You look at once a daily dosing of two weeks on, taking a two week off holiday and then two weeks on again. <clears throat> and then looking at 200 square centimeters of surface area that's being treated, okay? 
And the reason for that is because, again, not only is it more efficient in how we can treat surface area better, but what was discovered in the studies was that there was no benefit to plowing right through and saying, let's just do a six-week straight. All they had were more of the adverse events of the study and none of the benefits. So that's where the holiday comes in. There's something called a therapeutic interval where you're actually treating, and then during the time that you're not treating, your immune system is still making the responses that you need to make things work against the disease process. Okay, so that's actually what's going on in the two weeks off. And that's where, again, the patients are going to get that benefit from the rest, but we're also going to get a full use of that 28 days of treatment, which the patients are going to get from that pump. Okay, so keep in mind, again, this is the label of the branded Zyclera, and that's the difference between that and the generic Imiquimod, which doesn't have this label, as well as these indications of 200 square centimeters, this dosage protocol, and six weeks of total therapy. Okay, and that's the important thing of making sure that when patients are getting those prescriptions that the pharmacy is not substituting those because then they have, we have to go through a brand new dosage protocol and that's going to have some adverse outcomes when the patients are using 5% more aggressively. Right? That's going to lead to more phone calls, lead to more uh, problems that the patients are not going to want to stick with therapy and that's going to be the fault of the pharmacist for not consulting with the, with the clinic on why they made that substitution. So it's important to make the patients aware that they need to get this percentage with this dosage protocol. That's very significant even though imiquimod is still imiquimod in both cases. Okay, <clears throat> so a little bit more caffeine as we talk about trials because Evan likes to, loves to talk about clinical trials and say, where's the data? So let's talk about cycles and where the non-treatment non cycle is and also where 2.5, 375, and vehicle compare to each other in two two-week cycles. Okay? Because what's important about that is, again, if you think about where's the patient for 2.5, where's the patient for 375, when do I start somebody on one, or if they've already had experience in one, do I make a move to the other one? This is where you, you use your judgment as saying, how much activity are we dealing with? How many AKs have they had? How much photo damage are we dealing with? And more importantly, what is that patient's risk of skin cancer going to be down the road? Because that's where we're, again, optimizing our topical management to you know, basically think about how are we using that for every other treatment that we use in the office. Okay? That's not, again, to endorse a combination of anything. It's just to say this is the reality of maintaining the gains of what we've accomplished in both venues. Okay, so what they did here was they took packets back when it was still in packets. They left it on for eight hours. Oh, I hit that button again. That's bad. Okay, and then they looked at you know a couple of different protocols. Now they took about 500 patients. They had five to 20 AKs, 200 square centimeters, six weeks of dosage with the two-week holiday. Treated everyone daily. This is how we do things in the office, right? This is how all of us use Zyclera effectively, going back to that other caveat of saying maybe there's a day off here and there that's necessary, okay? But the more important thing is we have the flexibility of more surface area and we have to be careful of how many different events there are. Now, when we think about you know, who's getting clear and who's getting partially clear, these are great for a study, right? But we don't think about that in the office. We wanna say, okay, I'll see you at this endpoint. I'll see you two weeks in for your manager reactions. I'll see you at six weeks. I'll see you at 14 weeks at the end, and I'll see you in three months, right? These are somewhere in there, we're getting patients to come back, and we're assessing their endpoints. Independent of their outcomes, independent of their reaction pattern, that's where we want to maximize how effective has the dosage been and how effective has their treatment been for, the, for maintaining the gains of whatever else we've used, or if we're just treating them alone, 
what are we looking at as far as an endpoint? And that's where they studied these here, looking at 75%. And then, of course, eight weeks after is what's considered week 14. Okay. Now, again, I show this because this is important to remember what is the labeled indication of 2.5 and 375 when we're writing those prescriptions. Okay. Because substitution against that is off-label, right? So if you have all of these AKs labeled in your chart and you have this much surface area, you are practicing on label and any substitution from that is off label. Okay? So just keep that in mind when you're, you're dealing with pharmacists who want to take those prescriptions away from you. Now, the more important thing is in the studies, they looked at patients who are age, mean age of 64, but anyone from 36 to 90, 40 to 90, these are our AK patients now. Right? It used to be the, the AK patients were all of Medicare age and a little bit older. Not anymore. These are patients who are in the tanning beds, patients sitting at the beach, sitting without sunscreen, and now they're developing AKs at a much earlier age. So it is a, important to recognize that that's the study protocol that made some sense. Of course, you know, you'll see them more in lighter patients, but even in darker patients, they found some AKs that were suitable to enter into the trial with. Okay? Now, again, some patients were randomized to 375, some were randomized to 2.5. Some are randomized to the placebo, okay? And if you think about those same patients in two different studies, they were randomized, and yet here's a little bit more difference compared to these two, and yet that's just the way that the randomization of the study turned out, right? There's no other way to truly explain that. What's important here, though, is, again, the signs of the symptoms and the reactions that may happen to anybody in those trials, even with the two and a half, even though the percentage is lower, right? Now, I look at it as a, as a concept of saying a Miquelmod is still a Miquelmod, even though the delivery of that percentage may be less. The reason I, I bring that up is it only takes a, much, a, a small amount of a Miquelmod to, to activate the dendritic cells to make the process work. If you, guys, if you guys remember the first Star Wars, when they went into the trench and they blew up the Death Star, all it took were two little shots to blow up the Death Star. It's the same concept with a Miquelmod. All you need is enough of Miquelmod to activate the dendritic cell process and keep everything rolling. Right? You try to explain that to patients, they look at you like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's okay. Just remember the first Star Wars, it was a good movie. So this is called partial clearance through here. Again, you see more patients qualifying for what's considered partial clearance because that's 75% reduction. But I look at some of these numbers as what's more significant. You think about the median reduction, you're thinking, okay, eight weeks from now, I want to see this many AKs gone. Okay, and these are numbers that we can rely on, that give us some concept of reliability as far as not just treatment, but also how well did they do as, follow, as far as following through with the therapy. Okay, these are, this is the reliability of, of saying, okay, even if I lose you to follow up, I'm gonna get these benefits from you being treated correctly. Okay, all right, now, probably the mo most important take home again is looking at the spikes at the end of the first cycle and again, the second cycle. This is called the demonstration of subclinical disease, right? This is your demonstration of how many AKs you truly have that are the ones that are on their way. And this is your body's immune system looking for them with that radar concept of the toll-like receptor activating the dendritic cell against all of the actinic keratosis or the potential for it, okay? That's why you see the spike at two weeks because daily activity and daily processing of your immune system will make that happen because of that radar concept. Okay, and then you see the two and a half percent still had a pretty good spike in demonstration of the lesion count, but again, the, probably the amount of patients who went through some what we call adverse events in those studies, or in reality, what we look at their reactions would be a little bit less because, of course, this is a little bit kinder and gentler. Okay, now. 
take this patient here, for example, you see 12 AKs through here, 18 on the scalp. This is them at baseline. This is 375, 375, and then the placebo. So these are all 375 patients. And you look at this patient, you say, look at this reaction here. Look at this vigorous response of how many AKs were demonstrated. But think about how we want to t handle this patient. We want to make sure that he's aware that this reaction will happen, or it may happen, right? We don't want them to panic and say, okay, your face is just going to get red, or something else will happen to you. We want, to, we want them to be aware of this, and we also want to schedule a follow-up with them to say, okay, we want to see you around that time so we can go over the reaction with you so that we're not having to hear about it on the phone in a panic or waiting for that Saturday phone call when patients are at the emergency room saying, I'm allergic to the drug, which in reality is just the reaction pattern that we would anticipate from the mechanism of therapy. Okay? But you also see here how many AKs were truly demonstrated by that concept that says there's subclinical disease, there are AKs on the way, and this is how we treat them correctly. Okay? This is that patient now at four weeks in the holiday, and you see how much of the reaction has died down, but it's still happening subclinically or underneath the microscope, if you will, based on that concept, again, of the therapeutic interval and what's, what's happening from the immune mechanisms behind it. Same thing here, you know, a patient might have you know, about nine AKs left, so they go through that second cycle, and you see there's more subclinical disease demonstrated through here, and then you see how many AKs were actually in the study. And then by that time, they're finished, right? Two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on. You can do any time of year. You know, back when I lived in Wisconsin, we used to do it in March so that they could be clear by summer, or we would do it in October so they'd be clear by Christmas time, right? So that way they wouldn't have to go through for the holiday parties or whatever else. You can be strategic about it based on whatever the patient is going through in that six weeks of time, but also knowing that it's not just going to be six weeks, it's going to be some time of residual erythema and whatever else that the patient's going to have to slow down. That way, if they're not going on vacation or anything else, we're not going to interfere with their, um, with their lifestyle. And this is, again, at 14 weeks, just looking at the endpoint there. Okay? So it's, again, it's important to watch the numbers and the lesion count just as much as it is to watch the reaction pattern. Okay. So again, you know, they look at in these studies, they look at local skin reactions, what they call adverse events, and the rest periods. Again, these are the things that in the, in the clinic, we want to use a positive spin and say, this is what we expect from the drug. This is the drug doing its job. This is the drug at the end point actually having some benefit. Okay? And that's, again, where they see here. You see erythema, you see some scabbing, edema, a little bit of erosion. These aren't that significant compared to some other drugs that actually have their impact on the epidermis. Because remember, imiquimod is not truly turning the epidermis over or having any direct effect on the epidermis. It's actually working on the dermis and the dendritic cells. Okay? And again, you see some headaches, fatigue, nausea. These are things that they measured in the flu-like illness. But in these dosage protocols, they actually weren't that high. Okay, and that's again the difference between the cumulative daily dose. The only thing that they showed that was high was erythema. Okay, now the reason that redness is high throughout is because of interleukin 1 as well as interferon alpha. Okay, when those are recruited daily and they're augmented, they will bring in more vasculature and that's what's going to create more erythema. Okay, when the old dosage protocol of twice a week for 16 weeks, there was that lag period, so the recruitment of those cytokines wasn't as prominent, and therefore the erythema wasn't as, as aggressive. Okay, and what you see here is only 1.3% of the patients actually stopped. Now, maybe 20% had some what they call adverse events, but look how many patients had some rest periods. Not that many, right? But that still tells us that in the field, when we're dealing with patients who need a rest, we give that to them and they, they actually can benefit from the compliance by adding the days on at the end, as well as getting some benefits throughout by keeping things going. Okay, 
So that's really the essence of, of Zyclera with the two, the two and a half and the 375. What used to be the old 5% is now more refined. We have different dosage protocols and we also have the potential to use the different strengths based on your judgment of how many AKs as well as the, how much photo damage we're actually dealing with. More importantly is whatever the patient's experience has been, we may find a way to put, put them on one, put them on another later or vice versa, okay? And that's where, again, we see a lot of that potential utility based on their mechanisms as well as their, their um, flexibility with dosage. Okay, so we've already seen this slide here. Let's just go real briefly on CARAC, which is a topical 5-fluorouracil. And what's interesting about 5-fluorouracil or 5-FU is that nobody ever remembered how it works or how we use it, right? It's probably one of the most uh, un undiscussed therapies, and yet at the same time, there are some real, real, there's some real data behind how we can use it to our advantage, as well as where we use it. Because what, again, is used for actinic keratosis on the face and scalp could be used in several different ways. And the way that, that 5-FU works is it works on rapidly turning over epithelium. It used to be used in GI cancers because that's where the, the epithelium was turning over very quickly. Now we use it in the skin the same way. And what was <clears throat> actually what, what brought 5-FU to the market was patients who were treated with GI cancers had all of a sudden rapidly clearing skin. And they said, well, why is this happening? And that's how 5-FU was actually purified into a topical therapy. Now, the way it works is if you remember A to T and, and C to G as far as the purine and the pyrimidine analogs for, to make DNA, when you get UV damage, you get what's called the thymidine dimers, where T and T actually intercalate together, and that creates a breakage in your DNA helix, okay? So uracil, or the 5-fluorouracil, is an analog, which kind of works its way into where those thymidine dimers can be cut in half, and that causes that DNA helix to unravel. That's why you see that sloughing response when you use 5-FU, because all of that keratinocyte death is creating a desquamation response. Now, the way it does that is by inhibiting what's called dihydropyrimidine dehydrogenase, or DPD, which is the enzyme that works towards thymidine, thymidine kinase and a couple other thymidine uh, precursors that make the thymidine analogs, okay? And again, I'll show you here, you know, the mechanism of, of making deoxyuridylic acid to thymidylic acid. Long story short is that's how you get those, those uh, analogs of purines to make the thymidines in the first place, okay? Now, fluorouracil as a drug, may create that problem, but honestly, if you use a lot of small surface area, that's really very unlikely, okay? But the difference, again, between 5-FU and amiquimod is amiquimod doesn't work on the epidermis. 5-FU works on only rapidly turning over epidermis to create that normalization effect, and that's why you see the slough versus you don't see much of that pain or itch effect when you, when you use amiquimod, okay? Now, we'll look at one of the studies here, what, about, especially with CARAC, and think about you know, where do we actually use it to its advantage? And, you know, again, you think about 5-FU, it was used in terms of spots. We can use it on surface area. We use it on hyperkeratotic AKs. There's a lot of versatility for 5-FU, but with the correct percentage, you can actually minimize some of the adverse events that patients experience. And that's where they looked at different dosage strategies of once a day using either one week, two weeks, or even up to four weeks, okay? Now, Obviously, we don't use CARAC on the mucous membranes, and, and that, that's very important because that's going to create a very vigorous sloughing. But also, if you look at where it has its effect, you look at, you look at the whole field of actinic damage and say there could be a subclinical effect also because those early changes of actinic keratosis can be recognized in that same turnover process. Okay? Now, 
These were two different studies here, looking at different dosage protocols, one, two, and four. In this study, they looked at again one, two, and four. In that study, looked at a couple of different pro patient you know, um, demographics. And this is probably the most important part of this, is saying, here's the amount of patients with complete clearance at one week, but look at the significant difference at two weeks, okay? Four weeks had actually quite a bit of difference also, but how many of those patients are gonna stick with two to four weeks? That's really your screening question in the clinic. And maybe we, that two weeks and four weeks can be, can be put on a different dosage protocol depending on, on how aggressive the patient is, is having a response. But more importantly is you see the difference between one week and two weeks. We have to get patients to stick closer to at least two weeks to get those benefits, okay? And again, you see here the difference between, in this other study, the difference between the, the two weeks and four weeks arms really wasn't that significant. So again, we get to a point where we say maybe two weeks is plenty, because maybe by the time we're getting into four weeks, they're starting to get more of the side effect potential and less of the benefits. So it's that risk-benefit ratio where we decide maybe two weeks of every day is a pretty good protocol, okay? But these are pretty good numbers when we say, okay, is that partial clearance, and then we, what are we seeing as far as the immediate percent reduction? And you look at these numbers again, difference between 86 and 91, 83 and 88, they're really not that much different compared to how much drug the patients actually have to go through, okay? Now, this is where we say, look, how much systemic effect is there gonna be when we're dealing with only localized areas? And you think about how many patients were using 5-FU just on spots, how many were using it on surface area. You know, the indication might be for a longer surface area, but 5-FU does have some versatility when we think about where it can be used. And I think that's where here you see the, the difference between someone with how much irritation they're getting in a mild, in a one-week course versus a two-week course versus a four-week course, you see there's some real differences in the amount of irritation perception that patients experienced, and then of course that goes down pretty quickly because the mechanism of the drug allows it to be metabolized very quickly. Okay, so what I hoped, to, what I, what I, hoped I accomplished was at least explain not just the difference between the two therapies, but thinking about treating the whole process of where actinic keratosis is not just something we see and that we don't think about it later. We have to think about that same patient you know, in front of us. What's gonna to happen to them two weeks into therapy? What's gonna to happen to them a month from now? What's gonna to happen to them six months from now? And what are they gonna to do to maximize the benefits of anything we may do in the office to, for treatment, as well as if they wanted to just treat alone, are they gonna get some benefits for the long run? So that's kind of the summary of CARAC and then this is the approach to the field therapy, which I think is really the way we treat actinic keratosis now. The days of spot treating, I think, are going to leave us behind, and we need to think about what's on the way as well as what's in front of us. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up there. I think we have a little time for some questions. Sadly, I can't answer anything off-label, but I can uh, help clarify anything that we talked about today. So thanks very much. You guys have to dissect all these references, by the way, before you leave the meeting. So. All right. Well, I'll take any questions here, and we have a few minutes. That's good. I didn't want to answer any anyway, so that's good. All right, you guys, thank you.